anyone, however you approach your work, there's a spirit that you can approach it that elevates it to service. If you're really thinking about the well-being of others, if you're really thinking about improving the spaces that you're part of or contributing to their elevation. And so that's like something that I've tried to bring with me into the work that I'm doing now. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today we'll hear an interview with Nava Kavalin, formerly the senior researcher and writer at the United Nations for the Baha'i International Community. This interview is conducted by In Good Faith producer Heather Bigley. They'll discuss Nava's work at the UN and how it inspired her to start a Los Angeles-based media production company, all with an eye to serving others. So why did the Baha'i want, I mean, it seems like they've had a representative since the 1940s at the UN, but why is that sort of something that they do and want to do and make possible? So one is to sort of like be there right along with the other religions representing faith, faith faith-based perspectives and, and making sure that like the spiritual dimension of life is taken into consideration in, in major policies and, and like ethical considerations. The other reason and why I think the Baha'i faith has been associated with the UN from a very, like from its very inception is because in the Baha'i faith, one of the central teachings of the founder Baha'u'llah is that the time has come for humanity to unite and to overcome any kind of prejudice that would prevent us from embodying like our potential oneness and he's forbidden warfare and really elevated like the cause of peace as one of the most important for humanity today. And the UN is the main body that exists to sort of safeguard the peace of humanity. So the Baha'i community considers it a very important organization. So tell us about your role there at the UN. So I, I served there, I, I'm saying served, but I worked there for almost for four and a half years. I'm, I'm no longer there, but I was there until 2020. And I was the senior researcher and writer. So my job was really great. There are a number of discourses that are unfolding at the UN. So there's a discourse on gender equality. There's a discourse on media and gender equality. There's a discourse on climate change. There's a discourse on technology and, you know, all of these issues that are pressing for humanity today. The Baha'i international community chooses which discourses it wants to participate in. It doesn't participate in all of them because there are so many, but it chooses which ones it thinks are the most important and where we have experience to share or at least teachings that are relevant to that. And so my job was to sort of follow these discourses that the Baha'i community was wanting to engage in and to see like, well, what is the UN saying about this? What is academia or the scientific community saying about this? And what do the Baha'i writings say about this? And then based on understanding those kind of three perspectives, sometimes writing like a formal statement or or drafting like talking points for our representatives who are sort of like the ambassadors of the Baha'i community. So it was a lot of research. It was more research than anything else, but sometimes it was writing speeches and sometimes it was writing formal statements that became part of the UN library. Wow. I'm hearing you do a lot of research and that you are standing up and saying this is a religious perspective on this Mm -hmm. thing. So Ultimately, what do you want to accomplish? I think if if we had to sum it up in one goal, and I think there are many, but the primary goal is like we want to help humanity achieve peace. And there are a lot of obstacles. And we have like a particular theory of change that is somewhat distinct. And so I think what we would most want to offer is like that theory of social change. And so if I had to summarize that, it would it would be 
kind of this idea that like that I think Gandhi said the ends are inherent in the means or another way we you could phrase it is that means and ends should be coherent. So if our cause is like the cause of peace and unity, then our, also our ways of pursuing it have to be like peaceful and united. And as a global community, you know, we have Baha'i communities in war-torn countries, in neighborhoods where there are like rival gangs, in all kinds of conditions. And we're learning a lot about how to bring people together under those conditions. And we want to share that with others because we think that that experience is valuable and could be scaled up and replicated, even if you're not turning to God as like the source of it. And so we try to figure out what are the lessons that we've learned that like, no matter what your religious beliefs are or aren't, you can still apply them and it can still bring about a more peaceful society. So this leads into my question about your work as writer and director for Glimpses into the Spirit of Gender Equality. And you're also in the film. You're a commentator, too. So so why a film? And what were the hopes for the film? Um, I have lots of questions about it. So go ahead and talk to us yeah. about that. So the film uh, is called Glimpses into the Spirit of Gender Equality, and it was released for the 25th anniversary of something called the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action. For those who don't know, it's a global compact that government signed in 1995 in Beijing at a world conference on women. There had been a series of world conferences, and that was the final one. And this global compact had 12 critical areas that governments agreed to to sort of like promote and safeguard the rights of women and girls around the world. And because of this sort of compact, there has been tremendous progress along these 12 critical areas. So like one of them is the education of the girl child. And from 1995 to now, there's so many more young girls having access to education. And that's like a win. The The reason that we wanted to release a film was because we felt that there was, was that in 2020, we felt like there was a lot of pessimism in the world. Everything was being lost. And, and if you looked at the facts, it wasn't actually true. I mean, yes, there were like things that were being repealed and I think that two things are true. There were some things that were being threatened, but also a lot of progress had been made. And if you don't look at progress, you also don't learn from what worked. And so I think we had a feeling of like, what are the strengths of the global community? Which local communities are learning a lot? What, regardless of whatever's happening politically, what are these communities learning about moving forward? Because political things change and, and they're not always in your hands, but as communities and as individuals, you can still move forward. So how do you do that? So we wanted to make a film that celebrated 25 years of progress and that highlighted lessons at the local level that like no matter what's happening politically, these are things that we think anyone can apply and continue to move things forward. What's interesting to me is, you know, I'm coming at this from the perspective of charitable work. Do you have any thoughts about that connection of uh, achieving gender equality as a service or a charitable work? I think that the equality of women and men is a tremendous service to humanity. Like we need that equality. And there's so much that women bring to every arena that they participate in that helps like elevate those arenas, especially when they've had the capacity, they've had the opportunity to build their capacity. And so humanity in a way is kind of like lopsided because women aren't able to participate equally with men in many places and in every arena. This would bring, I think, so, so much prosperity to the world if women were truly equal with men. So that's like on a conceptual level, but in like practical daily work, you know, one of the things that we, that we highlight in that film is there are certain communities where women are still excluded from formal educational spaces, or if the families have to choose, they educate the boys, not the girls. And so we were looking at local communities where they really create spaces for informal education for girls as well, if the girls aren't able to participate in formal education, but sort of like in these informal spaces 
where no one is paying for the teachers, no one is providing infrastructure, it's volunteers, you know, it's people giving their time to make sure that every member of that community, the boys and the girls have an opportunity to learn. And so it just really requires service. One of the things that I liked that the film talked about was how uh, women's equality cuts across like all of these other initiatives. Talk more about that, how gender equality is going to actually cut across all of our all of the things we want to achieve. Yeah, that we we had a lot of questions about how to organize the film. I think initially we were thinking of like showing gender equality across the lifespan of a woman. So like, what are the critical issues in childhood? What are the critical issues in youth? What are the critical issues as an adult and then as an older woman? I think those were like the four the four things. And when we went to these communities, we just found that it was a different film. It wasn't what we had envisioned initially, but that there was actually just so much richness in like what was happening in families what was happening in school settings, what was happening at like the local community level with community organizers that were really passionate. And so we decided to organize it thematically rather than by the life cycle of the woman. Even though the principle is the same, the principle is gender equality, the way that it expresses itself can can vary in these different arenas. And we have to learn what needs to come to the forefront in these different areas. So like in the family, the way that parents treat sons and daughters is extremely important because if brothers are given preferential treatment, if they never have to do any of the housework, it sends a message and it cultivates a certain way of thinking. And, and I do remember one thing that surprised me was like in so many communities, even in New York, which I was not expecting, this issue of like household work kept coming up, that even at this like basic level, we haven't figured out parity. So then you make this film and then it seems like that was the impetus perhaps for you to start your own media company. Is that true? Or how, what would you see as the it's, sort it's of... kind of parallel, actually. So every year at the UN, there's an event, I guess you could call it, called the Commission on the Status of Women. And they review like governments from around the world, people in um, the social arena, NGOs all come together. It's like 9,000 people come. It's It's one of the biggest events that happens at the UN every year. I think it was 2018 or 2019, the review theme was the impact of media on women and girls and how women were represented in media. And I had just finished some research on youth radicalization, which was like pretty upsetting, but this research just hit me in a different way, like seeing the the effects on women of media in most countries, including the United States, was extremely damaging. And I knew that it was somewhat damaging, but it was like much more damaging than I thought. And a lot of it has to do with the proliferation of pornography, which people don't wanna talk about, but it has like devastating consequences and it's so widespread. And as I was doing the research, I felt really strongly that I didn't just wanna like study it, but I wanted to create media that was better. And I was like, well, how do I do that? (laughs) Uh, But it was like something that I was thinking about. And I, you know, with another colleague, we pitched to our office, them letting us make short films to start sharing some of our ideas. And that was approved. And so she and I started working together with like young filmmakers and producers. And basically I ended up meeting all of these people in media and forming relationships. So the, the two things were happening in parallel. I was working at the UN during the day. And then at night I was like studying, how do you write a script, a series Bible, like, you know, what would it mean to work in commercial media? And so, and then I just found that I was a lot, although I loved my work at the UN, I was even more passionate about media. It just was like a fire that I didn't know I had. Um, And so I decided to kind of pivot to that. When you look backwards, do you feel like you've had experiences that have prepared you for working at the UN or working in media? 
I have had many careers and I would say that the common thread throughout my life has been writing and education. So even when I was a teacher, I was an English teacher, loved to read books, have always loved to write, would try to integrate creative writing into anything that I taught. And so that passion has like always been there. And my work at the UN was primarily as a you know researcher and writer. So I felt like actually that thread was always really clear. And then my other passion is education. I like, I truly love education. When I went to the UN, it was a very difficult decision whether to leave education to do that. The pivot to media did feel initially like, what am I doing? Is this crazy? I have also always done work that I considered very overt service. I think teaching is a much needed service. Running a school is a much needed service. My work at the UN, I considered a service. So then pivoting to entertainment felt like, is that still service? Like I've, so much of my identity is predicated on doing work that I think is good and and important and like a service to others. But what I found is that I think it is. And I think that anyone, however you approach your work, there's a spirit that you can approach it that elevates it to service. If you're really thinking about the well-being of others, if you're really thinking about improving the spaces that you're part of or contributing to their elevation. And so that's like something that I've tried to bring with me into the work that I'm doing now. And then the kind of content that we create and that we focus on as a company, we have like a a very clear vision that we don't ever want to make something that's harmful to young people in particular, and that we also want to elevate women in the work that we do. And so we like hire a lot of women. We like right now we're working with female animators, which is unusual. There's not that many. And so trying to like bring these principles to the fore and how we practice what we're doing uh, has been really important. Today, we're hearing from Nava Kavalin in Los Angeles. Nava worked for the Baha'i International Community at the United Nations and now heads Ninth Mode, a media company focused on producing positive content for young people. When we return, Nava talks about how the death of her mother impacted her faith. This is In Good Faith. These have all been fantastically like victorious stories. Like Nava has been on a linear trajectory of win, 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 but I know it hasn't always been easy. So So it definitely has not been all wins. And there have definitely been times when I felt like a failure and maybe have like actually failed at something. But one of the things that was very challenging was I was a teacher and then I was, um, I mean, I applied and was promoted to an assistant director. I got the job, moved to a new campus, like new city, hardly knew anyone. And within two weeks of that, my mom passed away and it was like a very sudden death. I was not prepared for it. I wasn't in the same country as her when it happened. And it happened right at the beginning of the school year. So I had to take the first two weeks of school off to go home, to plan a funeral, to bury my mother. And it was extremely like it was an extremely painful time in my life that I didn't feel prepared for. And I was in a community where I hardly knew anyone. And I didn't feel like I'd received a lot of support from the administration at that school. And being a school director was very challenging. And it was like long days, early mornings. You had to work certain weekends. And I just didn't have the energy. I was like depleted. I I ultimately quit. And I quit in the middle of a school year, which I never thought that I would do. And I felt like such a failure after that job. Like, you know, just that like I hadn't been up for the moment. And then I worked at a second school, (laughs) like different school, same city, different boss, better relationship, and just actually found that I really didn't like being a school administrator, that I think everything that had happened with my mother had compounded it, but that actually it was something that I wasn't naturally very good at, or just didn't have the energy and love for that I really preferred teaching. But that was definitely a period in my life where I felt like such a failure. So what did you turn to 
in those moments to be like, there's something more for me. Um, well, I will say that it was a, a really, that all happened over a year and a half. And it was to this day, like the worst, hardest, most painful year and a half of my life. Every day I was in pain. Every day I was sad. Every day I felt like nauseous at work, like just knowing that it wasn't the right thing. And one night waking up crying in the, at like three in the morning and just feeling like I'm, I'm in the wrong place. I can like feel it in my soul that like I'm doing the wrong thing. This is not the trajectory for me. In the Baha'i faith, there are revealed prayers that were revealed by the prophet. And there are like prayers for different occasions. And there's one prayer that Baha'u'llah says has like a special potency. And if you say it with like utmost sincerity, God will dispel your afflictions and remove your difficulties. And so I said that prayer at three in the morning. And I remember saying like, God, if I'm in the wrong place, like pluck me out and put me anywhere you want me, I will go. But I know that this isn't it. And two days later, I got a phone call from the head of the office in New York, the, the Baha'i International Community, that a boss that I had worked with in Israel um, had referred me for, for this job. There had been like a sudden opening and she thought I'd be really good at it. Would I be interested in applying? And I knew I was going to get it. And I knew I was going to move to New York because I knew that it was an answer to my 3 a.m. prayer. So I would say that at that time, that year and a half, it was God. Like I was turning to God. I wasn't turning to friends. I wasn't turning to family. I was just turning to God all the time. Do you perceive faith and belief as something more ethereal and mysterious or something solid and practical, or is it on the spectrum between the two? I think the two are like woven together, like a DNA strand. I feel like they're inseparable. I, I do think primarily faith is like a mystical, spiritual thing, but I don't think that that means magical or not real. I think it's just something that we don't have like a physical sense for. Like it's not necessarily tactile or something that you can hear, but I think that we all have spiritual perception. I feel like we can hone our spiritual perception and we can perceive spiritual truths. So I just want to emphasize that I think it's like absolutely real, but mystical is the word that we have for it on this plane. But yes, I do think that faith and like, God and religion and the soul are things that our physical senses can't completely grasp, but that are completely real. But I do think that they have manifestation in our like physical reality. And one of the ways that we manifest our faith is by acting on it. So if you believe something is true, I think you do everything in your power to bring that into reality. So then how do you experience God in your life? That's a great question. I pray every day. I pray a couple of times a day. I don't pray as much as I think I could or should. And I don't meditate as much as I think that I should. But in the times in my life where I have really carved out the time for that and made it a conscious practice, I have felt the closest to God when I've had like a really robust prayer and meditation practice. But I do think that I have an orientation towards God. Like, Whatever I'm doing, I am always thinking of God, like always. I, God is always on my mind. I'm always wondering if he's happy with what I'm doing. I'm always asking him, should I do this? Should I do that? Even for like small decisions that I make. And I feel like my orientation is just always towards just trying to keep my heart open to God, whatever he wants to inspire me with or wherever he wants to guide me. So I feel like God is always present on my mind, but I have felt my relationship with God in particular in moments of peril. And I have always been protected and like always felt strongly that like God protected me and it's God. It doesn't mean bad things don't happen to you or, or difficult things haven't happened to me, but in like moments of acute peril, a, a trust in God has kept me calm enough to like make it 
to the other side. So those are moments where I feel really clearly that like God is in my life and he's protecting me. I want to go back to what you said just a little bit earlier where you said, you know, you're wondering if what you're doing is pleasing God. Mm. What what do you see as proof that what you're doing is pleasing God? That's a great question. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. So I'll, I want to think about it a little bit. But there is a concept that I became familiar with a few years ago. Maybe it's a concept that Christians also think about. Um, but this idea of like a confirmation. So this idea that like you make an effort, maybe you pray, you ask for guidance, you feel guided in a particular direction, you make the effort and then the effort is confirmed or it isn't. It's sort of like the door opens or it closes. I don't think it's always that easy. <laughs> maybe it's often not that easy, but I do. When I learned of that concept, maybe eight years ago, it did shift the, like, I feel like I got stuck less often. Like sometimes I would just like knock on a door because I'm very strong-willed, like knock on a door and just be like, if I'm determined enough, this door will open. And then the door wouldn't open, but I'd be stuck there for a long time. And when I learned of that concept, I found that I was able to move on faster if something wasn't working out, just trusting like, okay, this wasn't confirmed. This isn't what God wants for me. So this other opportunity might be. So it's not exactly an answer to the question of what's pleasing to God, but I feel like somehow like a confirmation, like the, the path being made possible, I take as a sign that like I'm on the right path. This is the path that God wants for me. So an example is when I decided to shift to media and I was concerned like, oh, is, you know, it's just like entertainment. Is that is that valuable to like shift from working at the UN to like in the entertainment industry? And, you know, even bluntly, like I, I've never made much money in the roles that I've had. And then in the entertainment industry, if you're successful, there's a lot of money on the table. And even like reconciling, I've had these sort of prejudices towards people who make money. So if I'm now going to make money, how am I going to spend it? What am I going to do with it? Is it right? You know, all these things. I remember one day sort of feeling like, I really think this is what I'm supposed to do, but I, if I do it, I really want it to be meaningful and like valuable to society and a contribution to society. And I prayed about that, that like, if this is what God wants for me, that he'll like give me a sign somehow that like, this is meaningful, that this can be really meaningful and not just like entertainment or, or like a pursuit of wealth. And, and in that week, someone reached out to me to join a committee under an organization called the Association for Baha'i Studies. And they help professionals in different areas really think about how can you make contributions to your field and sort of like the work that was happening at the UN, but like within your profession. And I had just transitioned into media, but someone at at that organization knew about it and was like, hey, could you serve on a committee that helps like all other Baha'i professionals in media in the United States think about how to contribute to the creation of meaningful content. And I just felt like that was a sign that it was pleasing to God, that I was on this path and that it was like a continuation of what I had already learned at the UN that I could apply it. How do you think you've changed or what do you think you've learned for the next, this next segment of your life? Yeah. The death of my mom changed me profoundly, profoundly. I've never had a period where I doubted God, maybe in the like immediate days that my mom died, I was like, do I really believe in an afterlife? And the answer to that question was critical to my like emotional well-being. Like, cause it, the, the real question was, do I still have a relationship with my mom or is it over? I think that was like the real question on my heart. But so there were like maybe a couple of days where I was like, do I really believe this or not? But I felt that I did, but I was angry at God and I had never been angry before, even if like challenging things had happened or had lost many other loved ones in my family. 
I'd never felt anger, but I felt angry that I didn't get to say goodbye more than anything. I was like offended. It's like, I, I mean, it's like pompousness, but I was like, I have like such a close relationship with God. That's what I always thought. Like, how could he not let me say goodbye? He knows that that's important to me to have that closure. And so I was like angry because I'm like, God can do anything. He could have created an opportunity for us to say goodbye. That's how I felt, even though it's like childish and, you know, whatever the case. But I think it took me like a full year and a half to admit that I felt angry because I was ashamed that I felt angry. The quality of my prayers had changed. I didn't want to spend that much time in communion with God. And I had a day where I I was praying out of sort of that feeling of obligation. And I, I felt like this is an absurd thing for me to feel, but like, I forgive you. Like, I just felt like I forgive you, God. I don't know if I had the right to not forgive you or to have anything to hold against you, but like, I just want to clear this from my heart. And, and then I also felt really clearly that like, what I felt really strongly in that moment was like, it's okay that you felt this way. Like God understands. And like, it's good that you've like cleared this, like don't feel ashamed. And it really was like a turning point in my relationship with God. And since then, what I feel I have developed is absolute trust in God. And I just don't get rattled as easily as I used to. I do get rattled a little bit, but I, I just feel that there is a significant difference in my like trust in God and, and not getting agitated. Like even through the pandemic, like just really feeling like, I just know that it's going to be okay. I know I'm, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And like, and I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to be protected. And yeah. And I feel like other things have happened since then that would have really shaken me. And I've just been a lot cooler through it. Cause I just really trust him a lot. I think that's really interesting when you talk about being angry because I've been reading a lot about grief and people, even religious people are like in periods of grief, that's when I felt most separated from God. And so, you know, people would come up and say, well, your faith must be really helpful to you and would be like, no, that's not what I want to hear right now. What I want to express to you is how much pain I'm in. So yeah, yeah, like just this universal experience of it's really hard sometimes to reach out when you feel like you've been left, right? Mm-hmm. And you can Absolutely. point to these moments like you left me here and you left me here. And then somehow you look back from that, from a vantage point later on and and understand it in a different way, right? Totally. I guess that's wisdom. I think so. Hopefully. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. Harder. Wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. What should I have asked that I haven't asked? What do you want to make sure gets said? Um, there are two, there are many quotes in the Baha'i writings at service, but there are two that I really draw inspiration from. So one of them says, this is worship to serve mankind and to minister to the needs of the people. Service is prayer, a physician ministering to the sick, gently, tenderly, free from prejudice and believing in the solidarity of the human race. He is giving praise. And then there's one that says, to be continually giving out for the good of our fellows, undeterred by the fear of poverty and reliant on the unfailing bounty of the source of all wealth and all good. That is the secret of right living. That's our time for today. Our episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley, In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a five-star review or comment where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed at InGoodFaithBYU. 
In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.